Hello and welcome to the Fellowship Phase, an Adventures in Middle-Earth podcast. I'm Josh and that's Callum. We're going to give you inside information on how you can find your own path through Tolkien's world. In ages past, the first dark lord, Melkor, built his strength. And he slept not, but watched and laboured. And the evil things that he had perverted walked abroad. And the dark and slumbering woods were haunted by monsters and shapes of dread. And in Utumno he gathered his demons around him. And in that dark time, Melkor bred many other monsters of diverse shapes and kinds that long troubled the world. And his realm spread now ever southward Middle Earth. Well, hello, Callum and Brendan. Hello. Hello. Welcome back to the podcast. Welcome back to the podcast, Brendan. And I guess welcome back, Callum. Although we always hear, I don't know, narratively speaking. Welcome to you both and to everyone who's listening. Thanks very much. Good to be here. We are going to talk about monsters. That was a very ominous start that you gave us, Callum, but it feels very fitting to what we're going to talk about. And there's a lot to get our teeth into, if that's a fair image to use. Think our toothy maws into? Yes, strong. Or do we teepy maws? We'll need to message Matt Mercer and see which more description is more accurate. We're going to do monsters today. We're going to talk about the monsters that are in the Lawmaster's Guide which is then a good opportunity to talk about the monsters that Tolkien himself created. And then probably what we'll spend most time talking about then is how to homebrew your own monsters in Adventures Middle-Earth. Is that a fair, a fair summary? Yeah, sounds good. I think that may be the most structured agenda we've ever had for an episode of this podcast. So a gold star for us all. Are you saying it's structured because I didn't say anything? I'm not going to comment on that. I'm just going to keep talking and hope that the structure stands. Not Shall we start? Other than orcs in this podcast was that Bernie disturbing? <clears throat> going to write that down here in my little gratitude I, I journal. I think my alignment is somewhat chaotic, so it's fine. I'll forgive you, Josh. Uh, keeping this podcast under control is going to be difficult because I'm the only one of the three of us who hasn't actually lore-mastered a game. So I'm going to need information from the two of you about the lore-master's guide and the monsters, which will require the chaos of Callum and the evil of Brendan. <laughs> I wasn't expecting to laugh, but I'm really here for it. The lore-master's guide then. Okay, we go right back to the beginning to when... We set off, actually before Brendan even joined us, we were level one characters. The first enemies, the first monsters that we fought were actually just brigands on the road. How does the Law Master's Guide do in terms of giving us baddies and evil things to fight as players? And so they lay out the stat block in a, a set format. It's on like a bit of mock paper. It is extremely similar, if not identical, to the fifth edition, other than the sometimes additional abilities. Although uh, most monsters don't have proficiencies in those, so it doesn't come up. They, they, they're quite nice. They're quite easy to read. I do like the way that they, they lay them out. 
when I first started playing, I would just print them out on a piece of paper or have the reference in the book. And since then, I've automated it all in Roll20 because time. Uh, and it, well, it takes time to do, but it makes the battles run much quicker. So yeah, those first brigands were interesting to roll with, and we've come a long way since fighting them. That was the first time that you'd ever DM'd before, Callum. So that was the first, presumably the first time you'd ever had to handle monsters, creatures of your own, was those brigands. Was it intuitive, the way it was laid out? Like, when you were running the game, did it make sense to you, or was it just a whole a whole mess of, of crap for you? Uh, I think it was... It took us a long time to do a very simple fight, and it was really quite difficult. But I don't really remember how it felt. I think it felt fun. I'm not sure I could say more than that. <laughs> It was quite a long time ago. I can't think of much of a difference between the stat blocks for Adventures in Middle Earth and fifth, fifth edition, but they're basically, they're very, very simplistic versions of the player character sheets. I mean, they behave in the same way, all the stats work the same way. Uh, they just, you know, they take out all the exciting stuff that players will want to do and make player characters kind of eventful and just make them simpler. That being said, though, you always have to run, well, you generally have to run multiple ones at the same time, especially when you've got kind of brigands and things, because brigands are bad at fighting, so you need lots of brigands <laughs> for it to be a challenge. Uh, Callum, I was wondering, actually, can I, if I can nip in, Josh, and, and put a question directly to Please Callum. Please do. That, that first fight, the brigands... Did you go for brigands from the Adventures in Middle Earth book? Did you go for fifth edition brigands? Is there any difference? What, what, what were you looking for from your brigands? It was a pre-written module that we did first, so I just literally did what it said in the page. Uh, so I think they're slightly adjusted. They're actually free named characters, but they just use the generic brigand stat block, which I think is different. I think oh, there's not, there's not, I don't, I'm not aware of any profiles that are just lifted from fifth edition. I think everything has been adjusted, changed slightly. You know, for example, orcs are, are a good example, you know, a good thing to have an example. They're very different from how they are in fifth edition, just like orcs mm. in Tolkien's world are very different from how they're represented in uh, later or other fantasy settings. Yeah, that's definitely true. I mean, they definitely, because orcs in fifth edition are very kind of powerful. They're kind of like a cut above the, yeah. the kind of normal bad guys. And um, Tolkien orcs are a lot more like D&D goblins, I think. Would be a... Yeah, you could have a whole episode debate on like gob goblin, orc, uruk, like all these terms that Tolkien uses fairly interchangeably. Uh, you know, and, and I think we've yeah. got this really defined image in our heads now because of the films and the way that they were portrayed differently mm. um, and maybe Rings of Power now. But I don't know if it's as, as clear cut as we would like it to be. Um, but just stick with that. I always get this, got the sense that Tolkien didn't really care that much or wasn't really invested in what the distinction yeah, exactly. was. There were three words for the same thing. Um, but that being said, it's it's really hard to do a, a game which is kind of so 
defined by rules and kind of quantifying yeah. things and not want them to be three different things. Yeah, I, I think that's maybe a, just a general thing for talking is that the evil is is indistinct and it, the, the core message is that everybody is capable of evil and it's there you know, that reflection on it, rather than being like, here's a specific, like laying out, like everything's very sinister, but it's not well-defined. Mm. And most of the terror of the enemy is not knowing. So if you define something, then it becomes usually easier to to not be afraid. You know, we're afraid of what we don't understand. And that that bears true when we talk about evil in this, this setting. So as you say, we have a game that's very based on rules, then you know, you're trying, we're, we're trying to define a lot of what Tolkien deliberately, I feel, didn't define. Hmm. But I think the the other thing that is really important or um, is a big factor when it comes to monsters and adventures in Middle-earth is that it's got the Tolkien inheritance on one side and on the other side, it's got D&D. Hmm. Now, you know, they're not totally independent of each other, but but there's a lot in terms of the way that monsters work in, in Adventures of Middle-earth that is inherited from D&D. Um, and I think one of the things might, I don't know if you want to talk about it now or, or come on to it later, is about the challenge rating system and about how difficult certain mod monsters are for a party to fight. I think um, that that is something where it's really obvious what's come from D&D. It, yeah, I, it, there's big differences. I, I think we spoke about this in an earlier episode that I kind of don't really look at challenge rating now. Uh, although maybe that's just because you guys are so hard to challenge because you're now level nine. <laughs> so, you know, I, I don't really worry about um, over challenging because I'm like, they'll probably be fine. But there, there's quite swinging abilities in a lot of them. Like all, basically all the orcs, apart from, I think, a couple have sunlight sensitivity so they have disadvantage on attack rolls and mm. perception checks during daylight stuff like that and they kind of force you into a setting where you need to use them in a specific like you know an ambush or it's you know misty and it's dark for them to have any chance and the challenge rating is just a set number and we'll talk about this more in, in, a, in a future episode, but so much of the challenge in combat in Avengers Middle-earth comes from the setting, just like yep. mm. world is. you know, the rocks, the, the the trees, the terrain, the water, the weather, all these things really ground you in the world. And so challenge rating is, is hard because you can't be like, well, modify the challenge rating by two if they're in rain but if they're in the, you know like who cares like yeah. <laughs> just thank you it's funny how much and like i love rules uh it's funny how much we all love rules to a point and then there's a cutoff and it's like no that's it that's enough rules yeah. Yeah. i'm having no more of that well, we really i've enjoyed this text that, that cutoff level that's what we need <laughs> I like it. Maybe people could yeah. email in to uh, the fellowship phase at gmail.com if you have a good suggestion of what we could call that rule. And if someone does, we will use it from now on. The point at which rules no longer matter. No. I have a question for you both, yeah, if okay. I may dive in. One of my favorite things when I get a new role-playing game, and I have far too many, is looking in the book for the section that contains the monsters, uh, or if there's an independent book compendium of them, flicking through it because it's fun. Normally the art is good and you know, the child in me wants to find out which the most powerful monster in the book is. 
I don't have the Lore Master's Guide intentionally because I'm enjoying being on this side of the screen. How is it contained in the books for you as Lore Masters? Like, is it is it like a big list? Are they all collated together? What what as a Lore Master do you have for monsters? I am going to let Callum answer this because I am going to be be honest and say that I I don't use monsters from the book. I I quite like making my own monsters uh, and thinking about what they're going to do in the story and then building them back from that. I love it. Um, I like you for shadow. Like it, yeah. So I, I love more than playing the villain is uh, is uh, creating the villains. So true. <laughs> uh, I'm going to totally disagree before we start on anymore. You're going to disagree? I'm just going to disagree that you've got too many RPGs, Josh. Oh, I see. Okay. Oh, fair enough. Ah, the suspense thing. So the Lore Master's Guide lays out, there's a section called the Wilderland Bestiary. And in that, they divide up the creatures into different sort of groupings. So like orcs and other things. And they put hags in with orcs, which is interesting. I didn't notice that before. Um, and intermix the like profiles, like the actual factual bits, with a little bit of detail on orcs um maybe a little bit of oh my god i've never read that um this little section of <laughs> orcs so they have like say they have like orcs and then they have little paragraphs try telling you about orcs of different areas and some details about them some adventure seas they have some art which is really nice and yeah i think it's really nicely laid out it's, it's interesting to read it's visually appealing there's a little bit of like story hooks and extra detail in there uh, it's, it's a good, and uh, in addition to the Lore Master's Guide and some of the region um, guides and some of the adventure books, there's additional profiles. And somebody in the community, uh, I don't know who, uh, otherwise I would credit them, but ages ago on the Reddit page, which you're not, if you're not on and you're listening to this, then you should go on. Uh, they posted a spreadsheet that they'd made, which was uh, listed all of the profiles for NPCs and adversaries and all of the books with like where you can find them and that has been invaluable so big thanks to whoever made that maybe i can find it on the document always here for a shout out for the aim subreddit excellent community right this list which i've never seen before but it's, it's interesting to see behind the screen there's a huge number here this so this is everything that's available in the the published materials uh now, Callum, from our game, how much of this have we used, do you think, percentage-wise? If you just hedged, how much do you think we've used or seen or encountered? Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe a third to, to half. A lot. Okay. A lot wow. Like, when, I, mm-hmm. when I'm like, here's a new enemy or here's a person, I tend to go to the book first, and if there's something that I'm like, that fits, I'll use it, and I'll adapt it, and I'll, I'll maybe, like, make it slightly more difficult. Or the converse sometimes is true is that there's obviously characters in the in the world that I know you'll come across, so I just take them and put them in. So yeah, I try I try to use them where I can, just because I think, well, someone else has put thought and effort into this and there's already enough planning and thought that I need to put into everything else. So if I can take shortcuts, I will take them. I also will use D D monsters not infrequently. Particularly if I have, and I would never do this, but hypothetically, if I had not done enough prep <laughs> in advance and I was sitting down 30 minutes before the game with nothing ready. <laughs> so if in theory in the future that happened, that's what you would do. 
no no i've definitely mm. thought it out and put a lot of effort and yeah uh <laughs> there's a couple of times i've done that and then it's backfired slowly but that's fine Have... you can you can only prep as much as you can and if you've not got time then you can just just do it with book monsters have you ever been surprised about them when you've used them so like you've had the rules and you thought okay right uh, you know i know what this enemy is and what it does combat comes certainly in my experience because the rules are so diverse often the first time you ever mechanically do anything with uh, a monster is is in combat you rarely like practice as a, a dm you don't kind of rehearse so have you ever found you've been surprised either how weak they were or maybe that actually there was a synergy that you didn't recognize or maybe it was much more powerful than you thought like have you you know misjudged the the material combat can be incredibly swingy and particularly the lower levels so i have sometimes been surprised about something that i didn't feel at lower levels was going to be challenging than was so a good example would be yeah. knocking out runin and basically one hit of a troll in <laughs> the city of the yeah. Which I think I've been saying wrong. So credit to James for for pointing that out recently. He didn't directly say it. He just said it in a very specific way. And I was like, oh, I think I've been saying that wrong. <laughs> um, so thanks. Um, uh, yes, uh, but then you proceeded to just gang up on and, and to to care of it quite easily. So which I think kind of fits with with what you see in Lord of the Rings films and in Moria when they take on the cave trove. They all work together, and it wasn't that challenging. So maybe that's a deliberate design choice. Uh, so yeah, I think. You will be surprised, but generally speaking, things go well or badly based on the rules. And some combats you've rolled incredibly well, and sometimes everything's gone wrong, and that's the hilarity <laughs> and fun of the game. Okay. Um, and uh, Brendan, you, I, I'm going to come to you in a second with my question. I want to hear about homebrewing monsters, but I want to hear from Callum. You've been through the journey of using just the books, you know, like the first time you're properly playing. The only material you know is the books. And I know now you do homebrew and pull from elsewhere. Yeah. So what was it that drove you to go beyond just the monsters and the pages? Yes. When did you start looking elsewhere or tweaking or coming up with your own? So in, in just pointing on the tweaking bit. So in, in the books, there is quite a lot suggested for tweaking. So there's a whole section of the lore master's guide it's interesting. where it says like, you know, you've got the profile. So they got the say like orc profile and then they're like, okay, so you want to make your orc different. Here's a list of different things you could give them new attributes, abilities, uh, or some of them are like group abilities. So certain, you know, maybe like, well, this band of orc, you know, famed and they've led by this person and they are maybe they ride wargs or something. That's their, what they're famed for. So then they have some affinity ability there. And there's a lot, lot of content in there. So it's really customizable. What I would say is that I find that a bit tricky because as I say, often, I mean, hypothetically, I'm prepped <laughs> and I just need to pick up something and put it in the game. So that, that doesn't suit me very well. I would rather it was like, here's another book, which is a list of all the enemies. And they did that for me because I think that's, I just want to pick it up and have it. Uh, the main reason I moved towards my own stuff was because you outleveled what enemies were available. So there are some uh, okay. very few monsters which are challenge level 11 and plus. And I know that a lot of people on the subreddit will say, you know, the game is only meant to be played to level 10. And even with the Lord of the Rings RPG, it only goes up 
to level 10, which I think was a really good design choice on their behalf. But I want to keep playing. I want to keep exploring these characters and I, I want to go to the higher levels. So I'm going to make stuff up and that's that's fine. Um, and the other thing I would so you, say is that there's quite a lot of abilities that are like, there's not that many, like in D&D as well, I think in fifth edition, there is a lot of abilities which are like reused, rehashed or very similar. Yes. Like I, I, there's nothing I find, I don't find it interesting when the ability is like they might do more damage. Yeah, I know what you mean. When it just becomes like, that's too much numbers effort. that skew up and down, yeah, yeah. Yeah, too much effort. Like, if, if this happens and they get to do extra damage, it's like, yeah, I'm just going to bake that into the attack and not bother with it. Because I, it's too much headspace to think about. This this idea of the, the monsters in the book kind of start to run a bit sparse when we get to the higher levels. So if we just stuck to the book, now as a, as a group, we're now a level nine. And when we all play, we're a group of six level nine characters. What kind of enemies are there really available for you as the lore master to challenge us? I presume we're left with pretty ridiculous Tolkien um, mythology type things that we'd actually be able to face. So uh, an example challenge level nine, which I just happened to see on this list, would be Franduil, King of the Woodland Realm. <laughs> So, the challenge rating is based okay. on the difficulty it would be for an average parity of that of four characters of that level, is my understanding. So, yeah. four, so if we weren't all there, which sometimes we're not, sometimes we're a group of four, uh, we would expect to be of the level to fight the king of the woodland realm. In fairness, I can't see him fighting on his own, and he'd probably be mounted on some sort of, you know. So I think no. there, would be, there would be layer effects, and I would give him levity, you know. So I think that would maybe even that build that character sheet would work well but and the, and the flip side to that is so like Glorfindel is level is challenge level 15 um he's got a profile really does it go up see i'm doing this thing as a child now does it go all the way up to 20 like who's the who's the most powerful what is the most powerful thing in but looking at the list i just was seeing up to 15 dragons are at 12 uh Demonic creatures from the depths, eleven. Uh, the Witch King, thirteen. Oh, wow. Okay, <laughs> the Witch King's at level thirteen. Yeah. Okay, interesting. Yes. I beginning to see why we might need to stray away from these pages if we to keep playing because we certainly are. You know, mechanically we're all at level nine, but what we're doing is not like. By the time you're facing enemies of that level in another RPG, you're talking about like, you know, continent dominating characters. We're still kind of like local heroes, very powerful local heroes, but, you know, our names are hardly sung in distant halls. Like the idea that, you know, in a few years, flu levels time, we'll be fighting the Witch King is a bit ridiculous. Okay, so I'm understanding your thinking. I'm going to play the theme tune for Local Hero, though. <laughs> Please, so Please add it Not in. That you need to move away from the books, right? This is making sense. So where do we go from there, Brendan? You've done this a lot. So I, th I think that, that Calum and I would had had multiple conversations about the monsters in Adventures in Middle-earth before I tried my hand at, at lore mastering. I think that the, the kind of the challenge rating 
of and the way that the monsters are scaled in in Adventures in Middle-earth is reflective of that D&D heritage in that in D&D characters level up to, to 20. They're not going to be troubled by animals by the time that they're level five. Animals are not going to be challenging. Humans are going to be a little bit dull. They're going to be mm -hmm. fighting exotic monsters, kind of five to ten. By the time they get past ten, they're going to be fighting, you know, kind of awesome beasts from various planes. And by level 15 to 20, they're going to be fighting cosmic forces, yeah. essentially. The issue is that the, the challenge ratings of the monsters for Adventures in Middle-earth are lifted, not in a kind of copyright breaching way, but, you know, an, an animal is a challenge rating of a quarter yeah. in D&D, in D &D, and it is in Adventures in Middle-earth. The problem is that because of the the kind of the Tolkien nature of the setting, you know, there's no extra planar kind of battles in Adventures in Middle Earth. Yeah. So you just run out of monsters when you get to the get get to that limit of of kind of the Tolkien lore. So I, I think that's an area where there is a bit of a mismatch and why it becomes so challenging to do monsters. Okay, so people listening to the podcast may have had the <laughs> same experience or are looking to get to the kind of level that we've been at. Their lore masters might be thinking, right, what am I going to throw at my players to challenge them? How would I create my own monster? So where does that process start then? Like, Do you start with a particular idea of the monster or is it based on the story or the level we're at? Like, what, What's your starting point for deciding? I always start with the idea. Um, I mean, I've, I've done a few, they've not all made it into adventures, but basically, well, I mean, I, I did a troll for a, a very troll heavy adventure. Yes, that's great. I loved it. Well, actually, I did several trolls, but they're all kind of based off one, one root troll. That's terrifying. Uh, but that was the idea that I'd kind of, I'd been using um, one of the adventures in, in one of the books as a base. And it got to a bit where you encountered a troll. And I read the profile and was like, this troll just feels a bit like a big orc. Yeah. I I mean, kind of lore-wise, trolls are meant to be kind of terrifying, you know, and I wanted to capture that flavor of, of terrifyingness. Um so I kind of started by looking at the the kind of the, the Tolkien lore about trolls and then kind of trying to build it from there. Oh, that's really interesting. Okay. So you, you, your starting point was the, the stat block itself didn't live up to your expectation. Did you then throw that out and start with a blank sheet of paper or did you start by sort of tweaking what you had in front of you? Uh, completely blank sheet of paper. Oh, that's interesting. Maybe. Okay. So... I mean, so I had worked out, basically, I tend not to use challenge rating at all, uh, not for the very sensible encounter building reason that Calm is talking about. Uh, I don't use it because it isn't very intuitive. I would agree with you there. It does involve a sort of weird conversion to get to a challenge rating. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a section in the in kind of the D&D books that talks about how you construct the stats for a monster. And that's yeah. really useful. But I use 
there's something called power equivalent levels. And I really wish I could tell you who came up with it because it is genius. But basically it means that monsters get levels, have a level like a player character mm-hmm. and you can, and they're equivalent. You can, if you've got a monster that's at a certain level. So it gives you a sense of a more intuitive sense of how powerful a monster is. Okay. I like it. So you, you see, basically you can say, well, a troll, a troll is going to be kind of pretty terrifying. I want it to be the same as a level 12 character. Now, obviously it's going to be easier to fight because one troll versus a group of people. Yes. But just for helping me to get my mind to, to, to where I want to be in terms of its, the level of its stats. So I kind of, I start with a, how difficult do I want it to be? How, how much of a challenge and what do I want it to feel like? And then try and build those two things to, to meet each other. Oh, interesting. Interesting. And the, in terms of the power level then, is that based on, cause I've done the challenge rating, like creating monsters from scratch in D and D and also I've used other systems to create monsters. Is it based on things like the damage output is where you kind of take away all of the, the kind of flavor of it and you just like numbers is it like this creature could do 20 points of damage per turn therefore it is roughly comparable to a level whatever is it does it come down to the raw numbers at that point so basically there's a there's just it's there's a useful table that someone's made that it turns challenge ratings into gotcha. these equivalent levels and then you can just use player levels and for balancing encounters you just total the num- the player levels, you total the monster levels, and then that gives you oh, the okay. strength of oh, both that sides. makes so much more sense. That's really interesting. Um, I found it online, so I will send you guys the link, and I'm sure you can drop it in the chat if people That's want great. to look at it. Because it, it, it adding them together instead of doing loads of calculations makes it easier. Now, I'm not against doing calculations, but I prefer to do the calculations in terms of tweaking the monster to make it good rather than then doing loads of maths to make the encounter work out. There's so many thoughts going on my head and there's a couple of things that I want to say. So I think that's so right there, that last point. The the two things that come to mind are the lazy DM. Um, yes. Which is just so good. And they always talk about like what you're going to prep that has the biggest impact. And what you're saying there is, you know, the feel of the monster. But also the challenge and that's probably the thing you can spend a lot of time thinking about abilities and so on but the players don't know what you're doing and also mm-hmm. you can improv that if you really need to you, you know i i, and I don't think that's I, I quite like improvising stuff on the fly so i think that's fine and then the other thing was uh to prepare for today i was listening to the melon heads podcast the council of elrond which was um they have a the, the podcast I think it's called Melon Heads, the Council of Elrond. And they talk about talking things. And two of the episodes I listened to was um, the creatures of Middle-earth and uh, the most frightening monsters in Middle-earth, which are like one was very early in their, or earlier in their podcast series, one was more recent. And what I thought from that was, it was just really interesting hearing people give a lot of detail about what Tolkien actually wrote about different creatures and what creatures existed and how he described them and a lot of legend and unseen stuff from the from the east the the qualities of these monsters and really it gave me some inspiration 
And then the other thing, which I hadn't really thought about, which I'm glad I listened to, and I'll, I'll pop the links to the episodes in the in the uh, notes, was they were talking a lot about the films. And like I said earlier on about Tolkien's aims for the shadow, and we talked about that in the shadow episode, but Peter Jackson with his background in horror films and yeah. how terrifying he managed to make so many things. Hmm. So I think that that feel of it, and Brendan, you really captured this when you ran the game in the way, same way that Josh does when he runs the Alien RPG, which I'm always like, you've, there's been a couple of times where <laughs> unexpectedly made me very scared with, with particular references to things in, in, um, in, in work and so on. Uh, that you, you can't undervalue how that feeling is so important. So yeah, you're both very good at, at, at capturing that. I think you're right. And lazy DM attitude to making sure that, you know, you invest your time prepping the things that then have the most effect on the game is so true. And I agree with you. I, I love running horror games as the DM. Like I love running Alien. Uh, my, the game I run D&D wise is Strad. I love running horror. And a huge part of that is that the monsters and the villains, there's like a sense of them, which if you don't capture it for the players, like the whole thing is kind of lot, you need them mm. to feel afraid. And that goes, it's more than just numbers on the piece of paper. You, they need to have a, a sense of it. And that's why I want to be spending time on, on how I'm describing them and you know what the flavor of their abilities or what their thought process is. Certainly when I'm running Strad, um, I really want to be able to think like what tactically are they doing? They're intelligent enemies. They want to be responding to what you're doing. And anything I can simplify and not need to be reading complicated rules while I'm also thinking how I'd be responding mm. is good because you you want, and certainly as a player, I want to be challenged and it's hard. Like we talked about this talk at the siege. You've got a lot of admin as lore masters to run a lot of monsters. <laughs> you need to make that as simple as possible so that you can do the mm. fun bit of the game. So it's interesting hearing you, like how you develop the monsters to make it as easy as possible you've talked about this Cal, with damage like sometimes just simplifying the damage if you're gonna be doing lots at once your your mention of well i've got two things to say there one is that i'm i'm not really a natural horror lover uh, i'm gonna say <laughs> and i um find it very hard like watching the the alien films which i had didn't watch until after we played the R alien rpg and so i made some very bad decisions <laughs> um, about how the aliens worked, which I guess is is um, a good way to approach it. Um, anyway, find them quite scary, even though they're not the scariest films. Uh, so yeah, not not a huge horror, but like I just really love playing the games. Um, completely forgot the second point because I got so scared there. So. <laughs> You're scared of your own board. I love it. Um, where did we get up to then talk about homebrew monsters? I've kind of remembered it. I'm going to cut back in. Uh, the way the <laughs> alien monster works in the alien RPG, which I'm sure is not spoilers to say, is Josh, I, I understand it's like the alien just rolls, you just roll dice and then it does one of a certain number of attacks. And that yeah. kind of gives me an idea for this. And it's like, well, could, could I use that? Could we, could we take that idea? Because I feel like often it's a bit predictable, isn't it? You've got a monster, they come in, they attack, and then, you know, they maybe have hmm. an ability. But if you took that alien thing, that's, that's scary. Like, even the way the alien runs, I don't know what you're going to do. You might just, like, straight up kill me. You might just play with me like some sort of prey. 
Mm. I quite like it. And I think it works because, and we've talked about this before, about how as a as a lore master, a dungeon master, game master, when you roll dice and randomize something, you don't, it's very objective. Like it's got nothing to do with you. Mm. So sometimes if something you roll on a table that's bad and a player falls into a pit, if I just made you fall into a pit and injure yourself, I'd be like, it's quite a mean thing to do as a DM. I'd, I'd feel guilty and why am I doing this? If we roll a random trap and it happens, I think, you know, it's just random. It's just a game. We'll keep playing. What I like about the alien is they have six. The game is based on D6. They have six attacks. And when the alien attacks, the player who I'm attacking will roll a D6 for me. And they do that attack, each of which has a little narrative thing and then uh, an effect of some kind. And all of them have an effect. Some of them do mega damage. Some like might stun you or affect other people around you. I like it because I think it means that as players, you can't you can't read me. You can't think the idea is the aliens are the unknown horror. There's no way you can predict what's going to happen. You can't read, oh, well, what tactically would be best is this. So Josh will probably do, nope, it's, but you don't know what's going to happen. And I think you could mod it over and potentially add an element of, of kind of fear of what this creature is going to do. I think that's, that's really interesting. And I mean, I will definitely look out for orcs behaving randomly in adventure. <laughs> going forward um i think <laughs> i think it is <laughs> like men behaving badly or something like that it's, or it's, it's a sitcom that we will write <laughs> the um i think there is there is something i think that is really integral to the way that monsters monsters work and i think about i suppose this this kind of comes into the the homebrewing thing in a, in a kind of general way that um if you're if every monster behaves the same way when they come into a fight then it doesn't really matter that their stats are different that it, it is we're kind of coming back to that sense of feeling that you want to have a sense you want to try and convey a sense that the monster has some kind of agenda if they're intelligent or a sense of of, of what they're going to do um and that they're doing it for reasons other than just because um, me as Loremaster thinks it's the best tactical play to introduce a certain level of, of peril. Uh, so I think that that's really important. I think, um, yeah, so I think that, that kind of all of those things, trying to get the feel of the monster, trying to get the a sense of the tactics of the monster, what, what would the monster do in various situations? is kind of really important when you're kind of homebrewing them. Do you ever know like it? Down? Do you have like a, a like a, because I've seen, so you, you, you've you done a lot of work on trolls and some stuff on uh, ring wraiths and some other things. And you're, you've got, I can't remember how you did it. Maybe you'll, you'll be able to tell us, but that you had this like really nicely formatted PDF, which just looked beautiful and looked like almost like a semi-official supplement. Uh, do you do you write that sort of tactical stuff down, or do you just sort of know it now? I do write it down, uh, and I write it down for the reason that um, it makes total sense to me when I'm writing it down for the first time. But I'm aware that that you know often there may maybe months and months between me doing it and me looking at it again, and so it's just to be like, all right, that's that's what I was thinking. Um, to give you an example, though, when I was writing about kind of when I was designing ring wraiths for for one of our games, 
I um I, I wrote a little blurb for myself about what the tactics are of ring rates. And basically the tactics of ring rates are you are immortal, but you don't want to, but you don't want to die. You know, you, you got your ring of power. You are very self-interested in that sense, but also completely devoted to, to serving the will of Sauron. But you can look at things a bit differently if you are going to live forever in which case, why bother putting yourself into a dangerous situation? It's much easier to walk away, wait a week, wait a year, come back and kill the person then. That's, that's really interesting. And I guess it's also, yeah, I wonder, I wonder if you could like analyze the ring race actions in the books and the films. Because going back to talking, there's nothing better I think when you're running the game mm. and it might be that a monster or NPC or something else where you can, the feeling aspect and the easy feeling aspect to get is to just make a reference. So we do this all the time, like Homer's speech in the last thing, there was lots of like lines that were inspired by parts yep. of Tolkien's work and doing that with monsters all the time. You know, if I can write something in, that's like harking back to a scene or a moment or a passage of the book mm. or a quote, you know, that I think is instant, like real easy win mm. um, talking vibes, if that's the right way to put it. Talking vibes is exactly what we're looking for at all times, all talking vibes all the time. Brenda, what you're saying reminded me of something Calvin and I have spoken about, the uh, the book, The Monsters Know What They're Doing by uh, is it it's, um, Keith Amman. Book is excellent, and it goes through the the original five E list of D and D monsters, and basically analyzes their stat blocks, analyzes the stat blocks, and then looks at so oh, this creature has incredibly in high intelligence as a stat. That means they're mm. likely to be quite strategic about how they approach things, or they're incredibly strong, or whatever. Your thought process of what do we know about this monster, and how would that inform us with how they will actually do things? Because you're right, and certainly when I was an early DM. I used to treat all the monsters kind of the same, like they would all just run in and attack the players. And sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't, but it was kind of much of a muchness. Like you could, in like video game terms, you've just reskinned the same thing. Whereas really you want different abilities, different tactics uh, and different settings to kind of inform what what happens. I think that's kind of what you were getting yeah. at the ring with stuff. And, and kind of, Cal mentioned the the books there. So, and you know, and the films, obviously. The um, thinking about the things that the ringwraiths do, they always wait till night to attack. Yeah. You know, the, they're very aware of when they are going to be at an advantage. The Witch King, you know, leaves the rest of them to spend some time raising barrow whites and the barrow dens. Yeah, and which can only be some kind of strategic ploy in case people wander in there, it's now a dangerous place. You know, there's this sort of kind of, the times and a lot of, a lot of the, the kind of the, the narrative in, of the, the kind of the major conflict between, you know, the, the kind of forces of good and forces of evil is about trying to get the forces of evil to act at the time when they don't want to attack. Yeah. Yes. The evil side always has a sense that, you know, that if they were left to their own devices, they would just wait until they could win and then they would win. 
So yeah, it's, that makes sense. Yeah, I've not thought about it like that, but yeah, yeah, you're spot on. So it's, 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 it's sorry. The big enemy of of the of the world is scheduling. It's, it's scheduling. Very yes. thing to RPGs. Well, I mean, you know, um, Sauron is uh, Maya of Aeoli, so scheduling is the. Um, I'm, I'm sure Aeoli is the patron of scheduling. Is that what Galadriel means when she refers to Sauron being Sauron the Deceiver, that he deceived the others about his availability? <laughs> my, uh, Harris, my dog, who I don't know if anyone on the podcast has heard before, has been asleep next to me faithfully for this entire uh, this entire episode so far and heard his nemesis dog, who lives along the street, barking outside, which I'm sure was not audible. But Harris is now quite distressed and is having a monster issue of his own. The, um, I feel quite... Quite the nemesis them. dog you know do you think it's more like do they meet in person you know is it is it more like the idea of it the unknown mm. that, that sound in the dark you know the night you hear the like piercing screech of the nazgul like that's quite <laughs> i think in his ears the noise of archie who's the other dog who who is actually a tiny little dog and isn't that loud but i think to, to harris to our dog it is the scream of the Nazgul, that horrifying sound echoing around. But he settled then. We're all good. Uh, I have just watched Rings of Power for the first time. I've been very late to it, um, slightly deliberately. I'm Josh very excited. never late. He watches it exactly when he means to. Yes, thank you. That's exactly <laughs> what I should have said first off. You've teamed up well. Of, for those of you who haven't seen it, cover your ears for the next 10 seconds. Obviously, the Balrog appears in it very briefly. You can take your ears away now. My question is, is the Balrog a profile in Adventures Middle-Earth? Uh, this is I, child Josh asking. I 100% would have looked for this first if I had the book. I'd be like, I need to see the profile of the Balrog. Or a Balrog. I'm conscious that we know of the uh, one, but It's not in the list as the Balrog. But, uh, but I... there is, there was, I think, someone working in the community project on making a Moria region guide. Yes. Is that is that right, Brendan? Do you remember, do you remember that? Uh, I don't remember that at all, but that's not to say that it's not true. I will look for it. Well, while you look for it, we can perhaps talk. Because what I was going to suggest was, and I'm just dumping this on you, Callum and Brendan, you've had no prep time, was I've really enjoyed talking about how you go through the process of making monsters or converting monsters. I was hoping there wasn't going to be a Balrog and we could maybe do a bit of a thought experiment of starting how we would turn the Balrog into a profile. We don't need to do the exact numbers because we could sit down for hours to do that. But what if we take the Balrog that we know what sense are we trying to capture? So say, take that the party is the fellowship and we're in Kazadoom. So mm. that's the sort of setting. When they have their combat, what sense do we want to create with the Balrog? And therefore, how will we design the monster? Have you, have you made a Balrog profile, Brendan? No, but um, after this, I think I'm going to say that. <laughs> Brendan I just and I... Uh, also play the Middle Earth strategy battle game, the sort of Warhammer Lord of the Rings thing, which is a brilliant overlap hobby because then if we ever play in person, then you can use the minis. <laughs> You've got the minis. And Brendan has a beautifully painted Balrog. Yes. 
and yeah that balrog i did mate yes yeah and uh the rules <laughs> another thing to suggest actually is that sometimes if i'm looking for inspiration so i did this recently when we did a, a one-shot game where you were part of the gray company um scouting down and there was like an encounter at tharbad which is like a ruined city on the journey that they would have taken and for that, it was quite high level. And I got basically profiles for Urukai that Saruman had sent north to sort of waylay you. Um, or they didn't know you were coming. But And I basically used the models from that game and the rules for those models and I just sort of ported them into. So that's another area. So I think I, if I was going to start with the Balrog, I think I would go away and read what Tolkien wrote about it, Shadow and. Mm -hmm. Uh, I would think about the movie moments and I would go to the Middle Earth Strategy Battle game Balrog Rules and then take some ideas mm. from that. That's probably how I would start. How about you, Brendan? I think I'd do exactly the same thing. Um, I mean, I think saving saving everyone from listening to us looking at books for a while. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think that ultimately there would be some good good rules ideas from there. But I think just trying to get a sense of, of what what it is to be a Balrog or what what kind of that you want sense you want the party to get and there's sort of a kind of a um there's the darkness the fieriness but there's also mm -hmm. I always felt that the Balrog had a certain kind of inevitability yes you know, uh in the book and in the film that it just it just doesn't stop coming mm -hmm. Uh, and you kind of get a sense that whatever obstacle you put in its way, it's just going to be a, a kind of a matter of time before it gets gets through it. I, I totally agree. And I've heard a great, we talk about horror a lot, and we have already, <laughs> uh, heard a great thing which described the best monsters in horror, in literature and film, as they are not the villain. They're just like the environment in which the story takes place. That mm -hmm. sense of inevitability, like you're not, you're never going to defeat the monster. That's not what the story is. The monster is happening it's coming for you it's how you respond is where the story takes place and it does feel like that with the balrog that it's they don't really have a choice that in terms of they don't have a choice to not encounter it their decision is what do they do now one thing you talked about with challenge ratings is balance or not caring about balance i suppose with the balrog you kind of actively want to throw balance out the window because part of it is a sense of it being like something so formidable that it is out of your, you know, this power is beyond any of you. So you almost want it to be so difficult that your players consider not fighting it. Would that be fair? Yes, I, I think. Yeah. Although, yeah. I, I don't know. I, you know, we know they're not going to defeat the Balrog unless you go to an alternate timeline sort of route of, of this game. And so, yeah, maybe just viewing it as we we know what might work and what won't work mm. and so when you're designing the monster just saying you know this what you know like arrows what's an arrow going to do unless it's some sort of crazy magical arrow that's going to have mm. no effect but we know that you know and, and there's some debate about like balrocks and in the fall of gondolin like tolkien never quite decided what they were they were less powerful and there were some defeated there and um god defeat them so then you can think about like well how did he beat it and then mm. the players you know writing in rules that mean that if people use tactics similar to what was successful in Tolkien's lore then that would have a chance of maybe not defeating it 
but delaying it. So like if you're using a magical blade, then that's probably going to have some sort of effect. You know, elves maybe have some resistance to it that you're, you know, if you if you've got magic user with you, then there's there's a chance. Um, but yeah, I, this sort of harks back to I, there's um I've got so many ideas for games. One of the games I really like to do, <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure we've mentioned this in the pod before. Apologies if we have. Is similar to Critical Roles, um, Exandria, Unlimited, uh, Calamity, Calamity, which I think everyone if they've seen it will agree is amazing. Do that, but the Mori exhibition, expedition, sorry, um, with Balan and Co. I think that'd be such a fun game of like, you know, adventures in Moria and then the Balrog comes at the end. And uh, I was looking through all my resources because I, I tend to just, if I find something useful for this game on the internet, I just save it in a big folder. And I often forget about really useful things and then find them later <laughs> on. There's a couple of things. So there's um, the uh, Merp modules, Middle Earth role-playing game, and they've got some stuff mm-hmm. about Balrog, but it's hard to port because it's of inspiration. But the other thing is that... Um, Back when Cubicle 7 first released AIM, yes. uh, they, when they would just put out the player's guide, but they hadn't put out the lore master's guide, some people in the community, someone called Effendel and Julian Stanley, uh, with the uh, help of the Cubicle 7 forums, which was the space before the Reddit page, they made a Middle Earth bestiary, which I think you can find on the Reddit page. It's maybe linked. Mm. I can't, I honestly don't know where I got it from. Anyway, thanks to them. And they have a profile for a Ooh. Okay. Which I can maybe tell you about if you're interested. Please do. I'm intrigued to know what, you know, you could, we go through all this process. Ultimately, the Balrog does have some some weapons that it uses, even though they're very otherworldly. What kind of damage would we be doing if you're rolling as the lore master for the Balrog's <laughs> whip? How much damage are we potentially doing? Okay, so the whip. Plus 14 to hit, so probably okay, about yeah. level okay. plus player. Uh, reach of 30 feet, terrifying. That, that's yeah. terrifying, yeah. Uh, 2d6 plus 8 slashing damage, plus 3d6 fire. So around 25 damage. Okay. And then you have to take a strength saving throw or be pulled towards the Balrog. So that's not okay. the real damage dealer. So reading from those stats, that plus 14 to hit means that it's going to be virtually guaranteed... Take, yeah. it's going to hit more than about three quarters of the time but the damage isn't actually that terrible 25 the consequence is rubbish i mean yeah, if he wants pull, to be in he wants to be right next to the balrog but um i think that it looks like someone's written that with a view to it being able to deal reliable damage that isn't going to seriously kill yeah, uh, a moderately leveled. Player. The sword does, on average, thirty-four points of damage per hit. <laughs> uh, if it does a critical, it gets extra damage dice. Some of those are fire. It also has um, a fire aura, which does damage anybody within range. So it pulls you close to the whip and then starts putting you on fire. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah. I like the resistance to everything. Basically, it's immune to fire. And uh, it also has an ability that basically almost guarantees that you're going to become frightened. So you're going to be roll, rolling a disadvantage and won't be able to move towards it. So someone mm. gets dragged in, gets down, people won't be able to get close and heal them. There's no ranged healing. So it's, it's pretty terrifying. It also, the, something going back to what we were saying before about what you want to, the sense you want to create. The whip having a, a reach of 30 feet and that pulling people closer. 
30 feet is the average movement of a player. As soon as you as the lore master have done that once to a player, and they can see that that mechanic can happen, because players respond to, right. to how the, the game develops, they will know that actually they need to spend their action to move further away. And you've already created the sense of you have to run away from the battle. Mm. And immediately mm. you've changed the game into not, we're going to fight this. We're going to try and run away. What's its speed? 40 feet. And it's got optional flying feet of 40 because of all the debate about whether they actually have wings, whether they can fly or not, which I like <laughs> as a little vision thing, because well, I, I personally that. don't mind them having wings, but I know that that's controversial. Mm. It's very controversial. Difficult to kill them by falling if they've got wings. A point of resistances, which is something I've learned both from creating monsters and running them. Resistances, it's surprising how quickly they uh, you reach a level at which they just go out the window. So for instance, werewolves, which we use in Strad, and which at low levels, not for my party, who slaughtered all the werewolves they've ever encountered, <laughs> Werewolves are quite fearsome, and they have the added danger that they can uh, potentially inflict a curse. They are immune to all non-magical damage. Spoilers. In Strad, you're all now at a level where you each actually have a magical weapon, which means their hit points have... Uh, sorry, they're res yes, they're immune to all non-magical... They've gone from being super, super tough to just normal enemies, just because mm. you've leveled up slightly. And I think resistances, sometimes people forget about how much of a difference they make once they're overcome and they can nullify the hit points immediately worth bearing in mind yeah i, I mean it is an interesting thing the the kind of the magical weapons um i mean maybe that's a discussion for another time the role of of magical weapons yeah that... but the in the game that we did with the with the trolls yes calm's character was an elf of rivendell who had dealt radiant damage Yes, fear, which meant that I needed to kind of do a quick mental rebalancing of all the encounters because trolls, the ones that I, I kind of made and using, have resistance to most normal damage because they're trolls and, you know, are a, a kind of have rocky skin, but are not resistant to radiant damage. So suddenly these monsters, which I thought were, you know, <laughs> yeah, going to be very very challenging to overcome were only very very challenging for three quarters of the party yeah that was an interesting game because obviously i had so much knowledge and i came in with this character who's basically like a bit of a glass cannon warrior with the one of the beats i think it made us both realize that i think i wasn't I just took the things that I thought were fitting to that character. Maybe we should talk about it at some point in more detail. But he he was very powerful. Um, was very I understand the mechanics. Um, but then that worked in a way. And in, in a way, like it'd be weird if you had a high elf of Rivendell with a lot of people and they weren't really powerful. Like that yep. wouldn't make sense. I mean, it it meant that he played a disproportionate role in the party. I think that it. I suppose it was an interesting dynamic because you don't always, often when you're creating parties, you try and create them so they're relatively even. And it wasn't, but that was okay because, you know, it wasn't all about this, this you know, everyone else had things to contribute to yeah. what was going on. It was just, you got a sense of that one of the characters was 
an immortal elf with Rivendell, and the others <laughs> were Brelanders. Yeah, just some guys. Yeah, and I public. think maybe in the same way that when we're designing enemies, I'm trying to draw this into the podcast uh, episode. Uh, when you're designing player characters, I don't know if I mind about balance that much. Like in our party, Carhu is like he's he's just he's almost like superhuman. Uh, mm. He he's a he's a um, uh, slayer. He shouldn't be amazing ability, but he's just he's just a really well built character and really well rounded. And he often feels like in my head, especially in combat, like a step above everybody else because the damage resistance is huge. But I honestly like I don't know how other people fear, but I don't I don't care because it's like it's so it feels right. Like the fellowship, you know, they all contribute stuff. Yeah, that's a great example because they are the, there's not power equality in the fellowship no. at all. No, but it'd be really quite fun. Like, imagine if you just set up an aim game and you actually just played each of you played as the fellowship of the ring. Or, oh man, this is a great idea. So Brendan <laughs> I've been playing in Middle Earth Strategy Battle Game, which is an easier way to say that. The quest, the ring bearer, and in that you can play through the story of the Fellowship of the Ring, but you make your own custom fellowship. Ah, cool! It has been delightful. It's so funny. So uh, one of our Hobbit characters um, hit the Witch King in the head with a skipping stone <laughs> and knocked him out of the game. Knocked him out of the game. Yeah. Yeah, Farmer well, Maggot's in the fellowship, and he's brought his dogs, Grip, Fang, and Wolf, and they are taking names. It's <laughs> <laughs> ridiculous. Anyway, what were the point to get back to what we're talking about, enemies and, and players, is that like I think there's something quite fun. Like maybe not so much in normal D D, <clears throat> but in this, I don't know. I don't know. How would you feel about that as a player if there was like because we do I have played around a bit with like sometimes people come in with a new character, they initially start at a lower level and then level up. I, but I haven't actually been a player, I guess, in that setting. So would that work? Like, if, say, we, we played the Fellowship when someone was playing The Hobbit, you know, and you, you were so much lower level or just not powerful in combat, and your thing was you take the health action and you, or you hide or, you know, it's all about survival and protecting them, or would, would that not work? I, th I think it, it depends on the way that you structure your, your, your story and your game. You know, that if... It is um, just to, to pick a random scenario. If if it was a mission to hunt down an outlaw or to to kind of to go and fight an enemy, then you, I think you would notice that imbalance in combat more. Mm. I think because that's not the purpose of the journey of the fellowship. That I think if the story has different situations where your your less mechanical strengths yeah come through then that then that's satisfying you know not every character is going to be the star of every scene so long as you feel like your character is making a, a contribution to the story as a whole josh and i have spoken about and are excited about doing some episodes where we like build npcs so we like do an episode about like let's make gandalf's profile yeah. Um, and uh, I've just suddenly thought it'd be really fun to actually make the rest of the fellowship as well. 
You know, I'd have a that great time making it. a great yeah. idea. Yeah. Like, would they have quite high charisma? Constitution would be good. They can eat a lot. We should definitely do that. That would be great. Right. This is something we need to take away and think about. And um, people who are listening as well have a think about. This is a good way of framing, actually, when thinking about play. How would you make people from the books or monsters from the books rules wise like what would you pull from where what's mm. inspired you we've talked a lot about monster creation i wanted one last question i wanted to ask was i was going to ask what your favorite monster we've either used or played against uh, that's maybe too much of a question to drop you on the fly do you have some fun examples of monsters that for one reason or another were just good fun? They don't have to be high level, but they can be just any any moments with a, a creature that was particularly memorable. I would say the time that Callum's um, cave troll at this, the city of the... E, a, what are we calling it now? Eotheod. Eotheod. When we're there, when we were there... And Callum homebrewed, I believe on the fly, that the troll's um, sort of swinging club attack could hit more than one player, which made total sense and we loved, was a highlight. That was you giving the creature an ability that you thought it should have on the fly, and it was brilliant. I think that was a good use of that. That gave us what we wanted, which was it was fun to play the game. So that's a good example, I think. What about you two? I think I know. So should I go next? Go next. Okay. I, I think my favorite was when you were in Gundabad for something like 10 or 20 sessions of the game, hours, <laughs> hours and you're going around. I put a lot of thought into like different factions of orcs, different types of fighters, different styles of fighting, and then had different like named characters that were like quite customized. And I yes. think that was after a lot of time and that was like homebrewing a lot of them. And I took inspiration from, you know, things that we see in the films, like actions that people take, be like, oh, that's a cool action. Um, or in other types of things. So there was like one enemy that, you know, if they charged into the battle, and then they got a bonus uh, to their damage. There were some that were more focused on stealth. There were some that had like low level sort of magical abilities, some which which took the sort of berserker style of, or, or sort of trolls style things where they had resistances. And I think that was most fun and i really approached it as you know starting from as brendan said how do i wanted to feel so like the feel of the different factions of orcs and then who leads them what their motivations are what type of things they respect what sort of things are they looking for in in followers and then using that to build the profiles and building it all all up and i i hope that came across because I use lots of custom images. So you never knew what the profile was that you were going to be yeah. using any of them before. So there was still quite a lot of tension, a lot of, you know, oh, you know, around any corner there could be a different. And you probably encountered about a quarter to a third of what I built for Gundabad, um, which, which was fun because I've still got a lot of stuff left. But um, yeah, I think that was my favorite favorite time. And um, yeah. running them made it, it made it really fun for me as well to, to run them. I mean, Gundabad was amazing, and effectively, in simplest terms, it is a mountain full of orcs, who in the rules are not... You did say they're customizable, which was interesting. They're not that diverse in terms of the rules, but it felt like each encounter and each enemy was different, so you did a top job. And Brendan. spider as well. 
Oh, let's not talk about that. Let's just we've we've managed to get this whole way through this episode without talking about spiders and my spiders. hatred of them. Yeah, I, <laughs> I always forget and like bring out spiders, and then Josh is just his face is so I hate oh, them yeah. so much. I hate you. You hate spiders, yeah. Brendan, unless it's a spider, in which case we'll just we'll just cut the pot right now. So. I, I, maybe this is this is giving too much away, but my my favourite was actually um, uh, doing uh, doing a game where we rolled a random encounter. Uh, uh, you know, so it was a journey event, and I rolled uh, two twelves. So the many meetings, um, you know, the meet meet a famous character from mm-hmm. Middle Earth. And so just kind of had to throw Gandalf in there. And it's like, oh my God, what, what's Gandalf going to do? And then, you know, straight off the back of that, everyone was feeling, you know, very buoyed and had all got inspiration. And they're feeling like, yes, we can take on everything in this adventure. And then I rolled the same thing again, uh, but decided to do the flip side of it. Fly, <laughs> you fools. Um, so just set it up as a random encounter, but actually pulled one of my... Uh, Ringwraith profiles off the shelf. <laughs> off um, the shelf. <laughs> the basically the 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 party just encountered a lone a lone figure at some ruins in the middle of nowhere, and it, I, I think the thing that I really enjoyed about it as an encounter was that everyone kind of came at it in the sort of a gung ho. We can do anything, you know. Brendan's put these challenges in so that we can defeat them and aren't our characters going to be great? And then just that first moment when they started to sneak up on this, this ring wraith. Um, and then one of them tried to attack it and he turned around and froze, made, I, I got them to do a wisdom saving throw, which they then failed and then were suddenly rooted to the spot and they realized that this was something absolutely awful. And there was just a really pleasant moment uh, where you could see everyone's kind of going, oh, this encounter <laughs> isn't, it isn't working in the way that we thought it was going to do. This, this thing is a bad thing. Maybe we should, maybe we should be avoiding it instead of trying to just, uh, charge in and uh and take it out i thought we were going to die that like we'd really kind of committed maybe a bit too much <laughs> not knowing what it was and it wasn't clear you did a really good description of on retrospect being like oh yeah that's what it was going to be but you know we weren't expecting we didn't know it and i think um i really enjoyed it you talked about the power disparity because it was so terrifying it was like well what would your character do in that situation and my character was like well I'm the strongest character, so like I have to stand and fight, and 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 I really thought he would just die there and then. To be mm-hmm. honest, um, he he lasted like two rounds. It sort of felt like Aragorn at Helm. Uh, um, he did survive just for the benefit of everyone. Oh yeah, listening. Yeah, they didn't. They didn't all die. They managed to get away. Yeah, and um, character did. I have some ability, the high elf Rivendell's ability that you can get them to skip you, like force them to skip a turn if you spend a lot of hit dice. I think I used that, which basically I think stopped them from killing me, which was uh, felt felt very impactful. It felt like a really good moment, and that was the feel of that enemy was really terrifying. It it was it was 
quite gratifying, I think, just to see that that kind of the 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 emotional journey, I think, of the party of being kind of just going in and I, I, I don't want to speak for you guys because you guys participated in that adventure, but kind of going in with a slightly, you know, oh, it's a game we can take on, we can take on anything to no way, <laughs> actually, actually, this situation is quite dangerous and maybe we should do something different. But also all the kind of character choices that then kind of came from that. Excellent. Well, that has been a bumper session. Brendan, thank you very much for coming on. It's always a pleasure to talk to you and to talk monsters and to talk game design. Uh, I think we've covered a lot. And it's maybe a record for the number of new podcast ideas we've had during one podcast, which we're very prone to doing, but I think we've come up with a lot. And I think homebrewing all the fellowship will be fun. Um, a couple of shout outs at the end. Thank you very much to everyone who has liked and subscribed to the podcast doing so makes a big difference to us so if on wherever you get your podcasts you could like or comment or subscribe or share we'd be very grateful uh, as ever a big shout out to the aim subreddit who've been very supportive and keep the game going as a community um i didn't get to say my favorite quote from the fellowship today although if i tried to when we were talking about the balrog which is when boromir says what is this new devilry when the balrog comes so i would quite like someone to send it to us on twitter as a meme because it will make me happy so if you don't already follow us on twitter you can follow us at, at fellowship face and you can send me hopefully a meme of uh, boromir saying what is this new devilry and that's enough that's enough for me that will make me very happy brendan thank you callum No emails except on party business. And comments, suggestions, and questions to the fellowship phase at gmail.com. The long year turns to its close. Much we have accomplished these last seasons. Our fellowship disbands, but is not broken, and we will return. On the next episode of the fellowship phase. 